I'm Leonard Lopate. Bob Henley has joined us many times on the show to discuss the news behind the news. He reports on leading political and economic issues for public radio, including a morning show that he hosts here on WBAI called What's Going On. He writes for Salon, the Labor Press, and other news organizations. And he's the author of a book published by Democracy at Work called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me, Leonard. And so many things have been happening uh, around the area recently. Uh, in, in light of Amazon's successes in fighting off unionization attempts around the country, how can we explain the successful union organizing efforts at the Staten Island Amazon facility? Well, I, I would think that Chris Smalls, uh, who has been leading the effort, uh, uh, has a, a, a unique story. It was uh, the campaign that's ongoing, of course, was a very grassroots one. It did not have um, the large institutional support of <clears throat> uh, a large, you know, of a, of a national labor organization. It was one born of his particular struggle, which I, I'm proud to say has been chronicled in detail on my show, Democracy Now!, uh, of course, Building Bridges with um, yeah, Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Uh, people that listen to these airwaves are familiar with Chris. He just has a keeping on spirit, self-effacing sense of humor, and has been underestimated by Amazon consistently as the mainstream press has now discovered. Well, but Amazon uh, has been successful part in uh, fighting off unionization because uh, most of its plants have been in rather uh, conservative areas. Isn't Staten Island one of the more conservative areas in in, uh, in the metropolitan area? Relative to the South? I don't know. <laughs> I would say that it is true, though, that Staten Island has a proud civil service tradition and that, it, you know, New York State in general, it is true, the general atmospherics here uh, support unionization more than any other state in the country, perhaps except for Nevada and Hawaii. Mm. Uh, we still have here you know, uh, 1.3 million people. I think the New York City Central uh, Labor Council has, you know, uh, hundreds of unions affiliated with it. Certainly, New York State AFL-CIO is a is a power to be reckoned with. Uh, in it is true that in right to work states, particularly like Alabama, where we know that um, our WSDU, uh, led by Stuart Applebaum, is in a pitch battle with Amazon. There, it's too soon to call. The votes are still being disputed. It's close. Of course, we know that it was uh, previously the union move was defeated, uh, but the, the uh, Amazon was sanctioned by the National Labor Relations Board for illegal conduct. And thus, we are now seeing a rerun of the election. And alas, it does appear that Amazon continues to do the same kind of browbeing and illegal behavior where they uh, have people go to these mandatory anti-union uh, type events, uh, targeting of individual members who express support for the union. I mean, and, and in many, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. They have amassed this this major uh, uh, global behemoth by all the kind of anti-competitive uh, things that in, in, in another day where we were more oriented towards trust busting wouldn't be permitted. But we have seen in the 21st century, corporations co-opt uh, our uh, national government in, in, a, in a way that's just uh, uh, breathtaking, I think now people are pushing back 
And we're seeing it from Starbucks to Amazon or Amazon to Starbucks in alphabetical order. And it's people taking uh, measures in their own hands. Yeah, Starbucks was uh, unionized in Chelsea. Is that the first one yeah. in that chain? I think no. I think up in Buffalo, upstate New York, we uh, we saw it. I think that this is the kind of thing now to tell you the big struggle that's looming ahead, not to be too Pollyannish about it. Generally, after um, the uh, employers lose this kind of election, they get even nastier. Uh, they target the leadership. They do not comply with uh, uh, labor law and then hire very expensive uh, law firms to go and try to resist, even if it's breaking the law. Um, so that they don't have, and that's why it's so important that we pass the PRO Act, which is pending in Washington, which would level the playing field and make it so that once people, working people are brave enough and courageous enough to be able to, to vote for a union, that they have a chance to actually live to see it come to pass. And, and that's right now, quite frankly, uh, that's where we have to focus is on this pushback that comes from corporations who own it. My, let's be honest, they have, they rent our Congress. Uh, we have to prepare for this pushback. And that means engaging the public pension funds that are under the uh, advisement and control of a Tom DiNapoli uh, in California, it's CalPERS, to put these corporations on notice that if they do not follow democracy, if they try to be little mini Putins, and don't follow the will of the voters as expressed through a certified NLB vote that they should be sanctioned in the global marketplace as outliers. Now, if history is any indication, the uh, next congressional uh, race will probably go to, to the opposition party, the Republicans. Um, so how important is the recent realignment of New Jersey's congressional boundaries that involve the Democratic Party representative, Tom Malinowski. Well, okay, so that's um, that's what I love with you. We go from 10,000 feet, and then we're on the ground in the town. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, cover a wide range of things I here. Know, so. I know. That's right. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, it's important to understand that this biannual election uh, is one that has, uh, we have to do this realignment every year. It's required by the Constitution. Uh, we have, and maybe we'll talk about this later, our, this 2020 census that so much is based on has got serious problems, of course, mm -hmm. because we know that Trump was carrying out a political agenda to undercount uh, communities of color and undocumented individuals. That's pretty clear now. Um, but that said, you're right, there has been a realignment. Uh, New Jersey, even though it has taken a hit uh, in the pandemic in terms of the population, uh, broadly was able to hold on to enough people so that it didn't lose a seat, which has been a, ten, a, 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 a trend in past years. And what we did see, it's kind of like a form of uh, musical chairs, right? They play the music, and then when it stops, uh, whoever's left without a chair uh, doesn't get a seat. And that's kind of what's happened. So, But is, is uh, this a form of gerrymandering? Well, it is. I mean, there's a, a new, each state has its own way of approaching this. Now, in New Jersey, there were... Uh, to the two sides, Republican and Democrat, come up with their uh, scheme uh, that would use the latest population data to re-rationalize as required by the Constitution, the districts. And then there's supposed to be an independent person that picks which one they go with. This time, the Democrats uh, won that. Uh, what happened was uh, the 7th District, which is pieces of union that goes west to 100 in county. It's a swing district. The 7th District, uh, Mr. Malinowski, uh, was part of that wave in 2018, a Democrat, uh, Obama State Department official, 
um, kind of a mainstream Democrat uh, beat Leonard Lancey incumbent. They were Republicans. So that was a pickup for the House. It's now the way it's reconfigured. Uh, sources are telling me that it, it favors the Republican, in this case, Tom Kane Jr., he, while he has uh, several opponents for the primary, um, the smart money saying he's likely to get it, matching uh, Tom Kane Jr. versus uh, uh, Congressman Malinowski. Now, Malinowski has the added problem that uh, he's evidently had problems following the stock disclosure requirements, and evidently that's earned him bad headlines and also difficult scrutiny from the House Essex Committee. And um, I am looking, though, when you get into the weeds here, while it's true that conservative uh, voters in Sussex were added, so there's like several thousand new GOP voters, probably Trump supporters were added to the general um, uh, body of that district. Uh, and it's important to understand that we're talking about the House hangs in the balance by single digits here. So it's true that every one of these swing districts could be determinative. So in the case of uh, Rawway, for instance, which is Southern Union County, uh, for years, it was in Congressman uh, Donald Payne uh, Sr.'s district in the 10th, which was very reliably Democratic, returned uh, 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 Congressman Payne to Congress year after year, and now subsequently in his death in 2013, his son. But now all of a sudden, Rawway, uh, which is a majority minority Democratic community, finds itself in this hotly contested swing district. So in that situation, it's going to very much rely on the local Democratic Party to beat the odds of uh, and get people to turn out for the off-year congressional election. And that's been, in 2018, we saw a new thing, which was an improved turnout. Uh, but we still saw we didn't achieve the same level we do in presidential elections. And so that's really the big problem for the Democrats here is to attach to this vote the same significance that attracted the groundswell of turnout that we saw uh, in 2020, when Biden successfully bested Trump. Well, we've been hearing a lot about gerrymandering throughout the South, but a judge just threw out a redistricting plan for Staten Island and Park Slope. The state of New York, right. So, yeah, that's right. I, yeah. And that, in that case, it was a case where the, the, the op-ed pages generally have taken the point of view that Democrats overreached there and, and uh, were, uh, came up with a map uh, that uh, unf uh, that was uh, to their partisan advantage. Uh, now it's going to wind its way through the courts. But the, I guess the latest I saw was that the judge cleared um, the field for people to continue to gather petitions under that old framework. Uh, one of the problems in general here is that the Republican Party's done a much better job over the arc of history of having their uh, voters be disciplined and turn out in every election. And uh, as a consequence, what you have is Republican control in um, legislatures, in state houses, governor's mansions, even down to the county level. So Republicans punch above their actual weight, in addition to the fact that Electoral College and the idea of two senators per state already favors uh, the red states. We have this, the discipline of Republican voters is just better at knowing that every election matters. And this is the kind of culture that Democrats have to build in, or no matter what your party label, we really need to have people present in the process for it to have any impact on the quality of their lives. Well, Andrew Cuomo obviously uh, thinks something can be done. We've been seeing all these commercials defending him on TV <laughs> recently. Yeah, I. this is the thing. I think that part of the problem is we're still in this era of 
a lawlessness. And um, the fact that um, Governor Cuomo can continue uh, to spend money, evidently, I guess he had like a $20 million war chest. Uh, the reason why he's able to do this is that the political class in Albany objectively failed to hold him accountable for his behavior. And I include in that um, his prevarications related to the deaths going on in the senior citizen facilities, his um, uh, giving a, um, a kind of waiver to, for liability to the nursing home owners, um, his taking $5 million for a book that was going to, uh, that spoke to uh, how he um, dealt successfully with COVID when he actually, I think the case can be made took his eye off the ball and it became a self-aggrandizement. I mean, all these things. And, then and, just, and he had, and he had other people actually working on it, even though. Right, exactly. He, getting, uh, people paid. that were on the public payroll. Right. Okay. Well, uh, so he probably won't succeed in this, but I've wondered, it just feels like almost uh, like a quixotic campaign. Well, but in some way though, the problem is that, and I think the media likes this. We saw like these blind items that show up uh, on page six in the post where he dines with Chris Christie at a trendy Manhattan restaurant. And they put that on page six. And what they do is they keep the bully bull, uh, bully boy culture alive. And, and we've had a real romance with uh, bullies. And we see what happens when we embrace them. We, I, I look at, I did this piece for Salon and Insider and Jay that looked at what I called the Trump-Putin weed and so I see a through line between this kind of alpha male behavior um, in both private life and in, in public policy that Cuomo and, and Christie and Trump and, and, of course, in a more most lethal form, Putin. It's the kind of idea that might makes right uh, and that they just, by dint of the force of the personality, deserve our attention. And the fact that um, Albany could not uh, did not hold an impeachment hearing. Uh, because the attitude among these guys behind the scenes is, oh, he suffered enough resigning. And so it, it, it's uh, it's kind of like this is all like some kind of gentleman's club. And then if you lose your polo pony, well, that doesn't mean you should be punished. And so, you know, and that's why we keep having this criminal class in our politics. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Robert Henley who's a regular contributor to our show and also has a show here on WBAI. You uh, recently spoke with Rebecca Rindell, the AFL-CIO's National Director of Occupational Safety and Health, about how we can keep healthcare professionals, first responders, and other essential workers safe on the job in the age of COVID. How serious a problem has it been? Is it an underreported story? Oh, it's hugely underreported because don't you know it's over? The pandemic's over. You certainly know that, right? I mean, that's <laughs> the uh, swagger's enough uh, off with the masks uh, onto the Ukraine. That's what we're doing, right? Uh, I mean, wait, wait, I, and, I think, yeah, and slapping at the uh, at the Oscars. That's yes, exactly. And so uh, I, I think here, and this really shouldn't come as a surprise, is that um, we've had a mass death event. Uh, uh, close to a million people have died. Tens of millions of people have been infected. As we speak right now, there is no registry of occupational deaths of those very same people who we banged the pots and pans for. And and, and really, in American culture, once we're done using you, 
what becomes of you is really not our affair. I mean, that is the culture. It hurts to say. But after I've gotten the ride to the ambulance, what happens to you as an ambulance driver really isn't my problem. And so that's what we have a lot of. And so we now have, um, we know from thanks to The Guardian and Kaiser Health News, one important study, the first year of the pandemic, they estimate 3,600 healthcare professionals in the United States died of their occupational exposure, most of those being people of color. That's just healthcare professionals. Uh, then, um, thanks to the due diligence and focus of some uh, people, first responder community, we know that hundreds of police officers died from COVID serving us, a larger number than died from being shot on the job. I know that's counted the narrative because we're in this great crime um, dystopia, right? That's the drumbeat. But the reality is that the essential workers that served us um, paid a heavy price. And the government and, the, and the, the corporations really don't want us to know how heavy that price was. In fact, it's important to know that at the end of the Trump administration, um, Senate then Majority Leader McConnell, he held up local aid which was so desperately needed for counties, municipalities, and states, expressly because he wanted corporations to be indemnified from any liability related to how they handled their occupational uh, exposure that their workers had during COVID. So uh, the good news is that um, Congress, uh, uh, thanks to the instigation of the FLCIO, and they deserve, literally deserves credit for this, the CDC is now undertaking the first of its kind occupational survey that will get to the, uh, at least determine which occupations were most exposed, what the results were in terms of mortality, and also answer the important question of what the long-term consequences are. Because what's different about this? And, you know, people that listen here are familiar with the 9-11 World Trade Center scenario, right? When the EPA said the air was safe to breathe, tens of thousands of uh, first responders from all over the world went to restore Laurel, Manhattan. Uh, tens of thousands of, si of students and, and civilians and people came to work in Laurel, Manhattan to get on with recovery. Yet we found out the government lied to us there. We know now more people have died as an occupational exposure as opposed to died on the day of the attack. 80, 90,000 people are in long-term care with the World Trade Center Health Program. I submit to you, that's what's in store for us with long COVID. We know that 50% of the people that have um, COVID and survive it will have varying symptoms of, of, of a, a range of consequences, some innocuous and some disabling. And that right now we're dealing with uh, situations, depending on the state you live in, where you are a respiratory therapist, you were a, a nurse working around the clock, you were a firefighter, EMT, you served this country during the pandemic, you now have long COVID, and you're filing workers' comp, and in cases around the country, the employers are fighting your claim. So but, that's why I tell you they really don't want us to know the depth and breadth of this. But wasn't this addressed in the new federal budget that was just passed? No. No. They, this is the, the reality is when the government doesn't want to deal with something, the first thing they do is they don't collect the data. And that's what we have here. Uh, we had um, on the show this Monday, Robert DePriest, who is uh, an attorney working with the American Federation of Government Employees. That represents 700,000 federal workers, everything from 
the USDA meatpacking inspectors to the, the people handling the bedpans and, and critical care in the VA, border protection, the entirety of the federal apparatus, the TSA officers that scan your luggage. Uh, it turns out that many of them, um, at least 600 died uh, during COVID. The government, uh, especially under Trump, concealed the actual consequences on the workforce, resisted providing contact tracing, and basically was in total denial that there was a problem. Well, now it turns out that in the federal system, there is an obscure provision that you can recover hazardous duty pay. And to the credit of AFGE and this law firm, they're now filing a class action on behalf of the tens of thousands of federal workers who put themselves and their families at risk. Because remember, when you go to work uh, on behalf of society during a pandemic, uh, and there's infectious disease about you're putting your family at risk. Well, they're following class action uh, to try to recover what could be 25 percent of uh, what these people made during the period of time of the pandemic in the form of hazard pay. I'd like to quote something you've written about this. Quote, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed workers to a highly infectious disease and far too many became ill and some even died. As a result, many were traumatized, have left the workforce, exacerbating an already existing staffing shortage. We must put in place much needed workplace reforms, including improved benefits, increased compensation and better safety protocols to recruit and retain our healthcare workforce. I mean, that's it. I mean, this is now to the point that if you look at the numbers, it's a civil defense uh, imper imperative. And that's one of the concerns I have about the way the news is managed, because even today I saw that President Obama is going to the White House to celebrate with President Biden the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I find that just and I don't wish either one ill, but to me, the pandemic and the massive uh, death that came out of it and the connection between the lack of access to care that it documents, uh, to me, would be a great shame. I mean, if they if they were to come together and say, oh, we were wrong, America, the pandemic has revealed that America's for profit healthcare system is an abomination against humanity. And we're going to go with universal health care. That would be worth a Rose Garden celebration. But short of that, it's just stunning that it's so disconnected from the reality lived by the people I write about. Well, uh, you mentioned the World Trade Center attack and the cleanup, uh, but you wrote about it in connection with the 111th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in Lower Manhattan. Uh, which was on March 25th. Um, how are they linked? Well, I guess the thing is that, of course, in terms of proximity, because one played out in lower Manhattan about um, uh, a block um, uh, east of Washington Square Park. is now an NYU, about eight, nine-story building there. Uh, that was the scene of the Triangle Fire. The Triangle Fire, 146 uh, mostly young immigrant uh, women who were in the garment industry perished. Um, the fire uh, raced through this sweatshop. The and, owners and it was had, reported uh, that there were locked exits to keep out union organizers. Right, right. I mean, it, to really get the context of this tragedy, it's important to go back to 1909, where um, 20,000, um, and it's kind of stunning to think about it, uh, uh, 20,000 
immigrant, primarily young women, were part of a, a, a general strike that shut down hundreds of uh, garment shops like this in, in Manhattan. And they went on a general strike that went on until the next year, I think February of, 20, of 1910. And they got significant uh, concessions. And the reaction in the Triangle Fire, the owners there, was to lock and block the access so they couldn't. And there's some historians who divided this. Some say that it was a consequence of not wanting union organizers to get in there. Others say it was to avoid theft. But whatever the practical result was, when after a misplaced cigarette set the place ablaze, these people were trapped and many of them jumped out of that upper uh, stories building and to their death. And it was one of those moments that was forever transformed because I think it was also nationally and globally reported. Frances Perkins, the, the woman who would go on to be labor secretary at FDR, was just a, um, a couple of, uh, I think, a block away. It is said that she said later on in her career that the New Deal started the day that the Triangle Fire happened. I, it really caused this, um, this uh, massive uh, uh, political uh, um, uh, coming together of forces that were, you know, it's interesting. At the same time, we had the suffragist movement happening. And so actually it was the, the wise of connected bankers who themselves were suffragists that actually reached out of their class comfort zone and embraced the garment workers that created the synergy. It's given us so many of the workers' protections that we take for granted today came out of that struggle. Well, similarly, after 9-11 World Trade Center, after this catastrophic event where uh, so many workers uh, had their health impacted, it was the American labor movement. It was the, the public unions, the, the building trades that came together and and in essence held the government accountable because they went back and said, wait a minute, we responded. You told us the air was safe to breathe. And that was the, the genesis for the Zadrog Act. So what we see is in lower Manhattan, it's an amazing crucible of history. When there's concerted action by workers, when they come together with only the their own well-being in mind, they can accomplish amazing things. Well, the, you mentioned the general strike of 1909. Uh, weren't the Triangle owners different from a lot of other garment factory workers who had settled with the garment workers after the general strike? They were kind of notorious for holding out. And they also formed, apparently, a trade association, something we've seen today, right? The kind of thing that Koch brothers do. And they, among this this hardcore crew, were, were resisting. Uh, they were acquitted uh, at a, a high-profile manslaughter trial that followed. Um, and then what was, it was fascinating to me is that also apparently just a few months earlier, there was a similar fire in Newark, um, with a, which was for that, I think still historically is the biggest loss of fire, of uh, uh, fire fatalities. Like a couple of dozen young immigrant women died at a fire there as well. And we'll, and get so, to, we'll go into more detail on that after our mid-show break. But right. let's stick to the, the triangle for just a moment. Um, it's been credited with kicking off the current labor movement and helping to establish modern-day workplace safety standards, although the COVID pandemic revealed that problems remain when it comes to issues of safety, wages, and working conditions. Is it because well, uh, nurses and healthcare workers are most often women and people of color? Yes and yes. And this is a case where both things are true. 
Um, what is uh, we do know that um, the possibility of an infectious disease having an impact was something that was clearly contemplated. The Obama administration uh, confronted it with Ebola. Uh, there was a close call. You may remember where there was a breach of a protocol down in Texas, and I believe that actually it uh, some healthcare workers were stricken by Ebola. But generally, uh, the playbook that was put in place. Uh, managed to keep it so that it was under control. In the case of um, of the of the pandemic, though, what we had here was a, a person who was in the White House in the form of Donald Trump, who actually pitted states against each other in terms of the response. And actually, the federal government became a kind of predator. You may remember that uh, governors that were enterprising enough to get PPE um, had to have their own state troopers protected because they were afraid of it being seized by the federal government. Um, so I, while it's true that the, the other thing about this, too, is you look at the arc of union representation, what happened between now and the Triangle Fire is that unionization was uh, was building up. We were seeing a higher percentage of uh, union engagement. We saw World War II really add to that through the 50s. And then we come into the Ronald Reagan era, and then he lays off the PECA workers, summarily fires all the air traffic controllers, and that kind of need to caps the labor movement. And then we have like a 30-year a slide, which I cover in the book. We, we saw in the 70s this, this tipping point where um, workers' wages declined, even though productivity shot up dramatically. So people's labor was making um, a tremendous amount of money, and they were participating in it less and less and less. And that set the stage for a weakened labor movement, uh, a situation where it was on the defensive. And so we saw the watering down of, of OSHA regulations. And so all those things that had been built up uh, started to slide because labor had lost its muscle. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Call him. Uh, he is a regular on our program. He is. Uh, he has a, a show on WBAI called "What's Going On." He writes for Salon and other news organizations, and he's the author of a book that's published by Democracy at Work called "Stuck Nation: Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People?" And people can also reach you at a number of different websites. Yes, yes. Uh, laborpress.org, which has no firewall, um, and um, uh, Insider NJ, um, Salon, uh, Raw Story, Alternet. You know, these days you just got to, the dollar award days are long gone, Leonard. We have to do it on volume. Stucknation.com? Yes, and also it's Stucknation. And then Muckrack does a pretty good job of uh, keeping up on, which I average like five, six pieces a week. Well, let's get to that other fire you talked about. There was uh, a terrible fire on November 26, 1910, not far from Newark's Broad Street train station, and that was just four months before the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Uh, it had five times the death toll of the, the Triangle uh, fire, 
Why isn't as well that well known these days? Well, actually, it's one fifth. It was twenty six people died. So the reason why, and I, first of all, great uh, shout out goes to Guy Sterling, a former um, reporter with the Star Ledger, who uh, took on this campaign and knew about this event that happened. And uh, talk about journalism mattering. Uh, he, uh, through his reporting, uh, made all the parties aware of what was going on. I think the site was going to become uh, a site of a, a new Mormon church. And um, he created an opportunity, I think, of the 100th anniversary for there to be a commemoration. Uh, and it caught the, uh, you know, it, it reinvigorated the lessons that came out of it. And so uh, it's now part of uh, the narrative. Well, the uh, official it, coroner's I, inquest found that, quote, there was no culpability here, no one was to blame that this particular incident was right. an accident and misadventure, uh, which is the official reason, and that was official reason given for the loss of lives. Nobody was ever held to account. Right, exactly. And that's one of the things, apparently, when you talk to people who specialize in occupational health, workplace death was very common. And one of the things that has resulted in an improvement is, aside from COVID, generally what Rebecca Rondell told me from the FLCO is that we saw a decline in workplace injury. Although, there's been this increase and this slap that happened with uh, 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 Chris Rock and, and uh, you know on the stage. Workplace assault has been has been something that is a serious thing that transit workers and nurses have to contend with. That's something that is, and that's you know management has some responsibility there for in general, but there's also a sign of like a general societal decline there when you talk about these kinds of assaults on on particularly workers who are trying to help people. Now, Guy Sterling also uh, revisited the circumstances uh, around the 1910 High Street factory fire. High Street is now, I guess, Martin Luther King Boulevard. And that one left 26 female garment workers dead. Um, it's, it's, it isn't even known today, is it? Does, why, well, why, that's why I say, yeah, that take, was important. Right. That is was it important. because it was that, in Newark that, instead of New York City? Well, I think it was also uh, maybe that has something to do with it. I think that um, the spectacular nature of the fire in Triangle and that it had come after the focused attention that came out of the general strike from 1909 to 1910. We kind of had the world's attention. Uh, and I think that um, generally when you have a situation where, uh, you know, you had like, so you say 26 individuals, the story did get national attention, that that catastrophic mass casualty fire did get attention. But I think that the balance of power was so skewed against workers, that people kind of had an attitude, you're lucky to have a job, which kind of resonates today with the gig economy, right? Like, don't make trouble, you're lucky to have a job. So if you get back into the mindset of that period of time, where it's mostly undocumented immigrants, people that are lucky to feel that they're lucky to be in America, you don't make waves. And so if there's ca casualties and people die, well, that's, you know, that's the risk you take when you want to earn a living. It takes something like the labor movement to snap people out of that and for them to find value in their own lives. Is there kind of a mixed message out there in this regard? Uh, I just read that there are one and a half jobs available for every applicant. So on the one hand, we are talking about a gig economy. On the other hand, we're talking about um, a lot of work available. Well, what's happened here is that 
We don't really, I mean, you look back at the Spanish flu outbreak, 675,000 Americans died. Now we're approaching a million, tens of millions uh, infected. Uh, one of the data points that doesn't get enough attention is people that are leaving their jobs. So we know that from September through, I guess, the beginning of this year, it's close to 20 million people left their employment. Because they were traumatized? Well, it's and also it's it's like eight million more than is actually enrolled in the twelve uh, the twelve and a half million people in the FLSAO, so it's it's something that's significant. And if looking at the surveys that have been done, what people do express is that they were feel they were let down by their employers during the pandemic. And it as a practical matter, we do have to process this and understand that our government and corporations fail to protect workers. I mean, that's a fundamental thing people are internalizing. Now, it's not discussed on corporate media, but that is, uh, that's a real severing of the social contract, don't you think, my friend? I mean, mm-hmm. if they can't keep you safe at work and they're already getting over on you because you have to sell the time of your life for like $8 an hour, and then to boot, guess what? You might die. I mean, that is going to cause people to recalibrate. And that's what Capital right now is on its back heel a little bit. It doesn't know what to do because it has arranged these uh, real-time delivery jobs that offer flexibility, but also the nature of work itself as a construct is that social contract is up for renegotiation. You interviewed acting FDNY Fire Commissioner Laura Kavanaugh, the first woman to lead that department. Uh, you, you you talked to her about the FDNY's long-standing wage and benefit gap between fire workers who are mostly white males and uh, the EMS workers who are largely female and people of color. So is there any talk about moving the needle for gender pay equity in City Hall in Albany or in Washington, D.C.? Or well, is it just something we're discussing right. on this show? Right, right. No, there, I will say that in the last contract round, there was some progress made, uh, but nowhere near what's required. And so, for people to understand this system, yeah, you know, firefighters generally, um, when you go in, you know, you do your, you get to the seventy-five, eighty-five thousand dollar mark pretty quickly. When you're coming as an EMT, FDNY wearing very much, you know, you it's part of the same organization. You're talking about the upper 30s, 39,000, 40,000, like in the 45,000 range. Uh, and so, you know, but during a pandemic, what we had is, you know, loss of life. We, we lost two firefighters, but we lost several EMTs. Uh, what, what was happening is that EMTs were on the front line of like a conflagration in terms of public health. And so, uh, Historically, the firefighters who have had a stronger union um, have had more political pull. Um, and of course, there's the issue that they were primarily white. And so this disparity is permitted to develop over time. And then to add to that, um, one of the things that happens is under the New York City uh, civil service practice, you can take a promotions exam to leave being an EMT to become a firefighter. And so what's happening is we're getting young people going in for this, meeting their three-year criteria as an EMT, and then promoting into the fire department. Now, what happens there is that you have an increasingly inexperienced uh, EMT force. And so what we need to do, because the research is clear, it takes at least six years to get to a certain level of 
optimum uh, capability in terms of being a street medic, right? So uh, it, it's in the it's it, there's a perverse incentive as long as we have this. Now in other jurisdictions, uh, like Boston, like uh, other parts of the country, there's total parity. And so I think what's going to happen is there's a recognition that in our age of pandemics, um, we see structural fires are down, but we see that pandemics are the real clear and present danger to to public. And so we have to adjust our priorities. As it exists right now, it's a plantation system. Well, I'm always curious about what I see on television and the news when they report the infection rate in the tri-state area. Uh, we have three different states that are largely interconnected, Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. People often work across state lines, and yet the infectious rates are different. Uh, is it because of state policy, or is it because of the geography of those states? Well, I would say that um, it's important to go back and remember that in the beginning, um, we saw, particularly in New Jersey, I think it was the the highest uh, per capita death rate on the planet at one point. Um, it is this area people do, um, I, I think they move around less than they did. I think you'll see that in terms of the commuting pattern that this remote work seems to be catching on much of the consternation of Mayor Adams. Uh, uh, but there are generally this kind of, we can see broad parallels, like it does move in waves. And so, um, you do see certain regional differences when you look at like between upstate New York and, and, and the Hudson Valley. But in general, I do think you see uh, a parallel, like when I see a downturn, because we keep an eye on this every day, when we see a, a downturn in terms of hospitalizations uh, in New York, you see that in New Jersey. When you see a decline in mortality, you see that across state lines as well. Although at different rates, but okay. Right. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, my guest is Bob Henley, and we're talking about uh, a, a lot of different things, mostly local. But um, let's talk a bit uh, about something national that you've written about. You, I'm going to quote you. You, you wrote... For some reason, a broad swath of Americans can see totalitarianism on the march in the Ukraine, but an insufficient number yet grasp how intertwined operationally the white supremacist anti-immigrant Trump movement is with Putin's push to restore the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, well, you, one of the, you're agreeing with yourself. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, if you're asking me to substantiate it, but I mean, mm -hmm. I guess when you look at the success that Trump had in galvanizing uh, the nativist sensibility in the United States, uh, and even looking at the precepts of the ideology that supports it, uh, this is very similar to what we see um, in, in the Mother Russia movement, the idea that people that are different from you are a threat, um, the idea that um, we live in a world of scarcity, and so we have to uh, be afraid of immigrants. Um, they are a danger to us. Um, and so there's a, there's a common thread there. And it's a worldview um, that is actually, what's kind of ironic is it's contrary to at least my lived experience. I mean, when I started acting as a reporter back in the 80s, and I remember, and you remember this period, over 2,000 people were killed in homicides every year. Now it's below 500, although it's up and people have reason to be concerned. It did increase. I mean, I remember 
there was a period of time during de Blasio's tenure where we didn't have a homicide in the day. Uh, that was wonderful. But the reality is that uh, New York City um, uh, was uh, the violent crime declined at the same time as we saw undocumented immigrants move into neighborhoods that capitalism had forgotten. And basically the reason why these places got better is that immigrants that come to America uh, have, you know, they're just like with every population, they're outliers, but generally it's faith, family, and work. That's what's going on, Lynn. And they rebuild places, like I say, that market capitalism uh, couldn't be bothered. And ironically, what we see happen is that when artists and undocumented immigrants turn a place around and make it better, in come the oligarchs and the multinational scene to redevelop it, to turn into Bloomberg condominiums that they visit between Christmas and New Year's. Tomorrow, my guest will be Sally Hayden, who's written about how uh, people from Africa looking for asylum in Europe are being turned back and kept in detention centers in Libya. So European countries are welcoming uh, immigrants from Ukraine, but not right. people of color from Eritrea. Well, and I'd say that also this extends to the fact that we watched passively as Putin brought out this uh, playbook uh, in Syria, right? I mean, it really was not of any real moment to the global community about what was happening uh, with Putin on behalf of the side. And so that's why it, um, it just jumps out at you, that the, this contrast in response. And it, it, we are, um, you know, when we had the further notice war on terrorism, uh, that went on and on and on after 9-11, where basically what we did is we spent billions of dollars proliferating terrorism by fighting a war on terrorism. We paid scant attention to the massive refugee crisis that our destabilization, uh, destabilization of so much of the Mideast caused. That we did not see. And as a matter of fact, what Trump tried to do is uh, punish those people who are trying to save themselves and their families who are reacting to America's militarist policies abroad. Didn't the Trump White House delay a $400 million weapons shipment that Ukraine was counting on to fend off Russia? Um, he did it in hopes of forcing uh, the Ukrainian government to launch an investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings. And that has come up again just recently uh, as part of the, the latest campaign against President Biden. Well, I mean, absolutely. You can't have um, I mean, I think you have to look at this the way that they the media starts the clock on this is with the invasion. And because that's what they have pictures of, I guess. I mean, I know TV's worked a little bit in TV. That's what drives it is pictures. But the reality is that this chess game has to go back to at least what was going on with the 2016 election. And then we had all through that period of time the role of uh, Russian influence and the clear kind of uh, uh, alliance that uh, that uh, Trump had with Putin and his admiration, his open admiration for all dictators around the world. And, and there was a kind of cult of authoritarianism uh, that really found and still finds strong support within the United States. I mean, we're still in the midst of a kind of slow burn insurrection. I mean, it's not really over. 
Uh, it's not over, and uh, it depends on what part of the country you're in as to whether you will be considered culpable or not. Right. There's a big keeping an eye on those trials. I mean, even the fact that we had here in New York County, uh, um, a DA Bragg, unable apparently, against the advice of career prosecutors, to hold Donald Trump accountable for his uh, alleged corporate malfeasance. I mean, our system even now can't hold um, principal players that are well off accountable. I mean, that's still happening. And then we have people like Tucker Carlson admiring Orban. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, promoting him. And there are any number of people in uh, on the American right now, which seems to be split as to um, whether Russia should be uh, held accountable for what's going on or whether it, it has done the right thing. Well, and that, I think, also this fractured response uh, creates an opportunity where um, small, a small committed base can have a tremendous impact. That's why the turnout in the next election is so critical for Congress. Mm. So we are coming close to the end of this conversation. Are there things that uh, you would like to address that I haven't brought up? Well, I would I would uh, want to just, there was a very important gathering at the, New York, at the National Press Club uh, that was sponsored by Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign with economist uh, Jeffrey Sachs that, and I'm working on a piece right now about this, that looks at, they did a detailed county by county analysis, all 3,000 some odd American counties, in terms of the COVID death rate, and then looking at the connection to poverty and race. And as I said before, with the occupational exposure, one of the things that when the government uh, and, and the folks that own the government, when they don't want something discussed, they don't collect the data. And this very disciplined analysis shows the, the gaps that exist in data. We know that, um, uh, that when it comes to race, that people of color born in ordinate burden because of the health disparities that existed. But it's important to know that one of the areas they pointed out that was hardest hit, the Bronx County, I'm quoting for the release that came out of this, Bronx County is one of the most diverse counties in the state of New York. It's also among the lowest income counties in the U.S., with 51% of the county living under 200% of the poverty line and over 60% of residents being rent burdened, i.e. paying more than 30% of household income towards rent. It has a COVID-19 death rate of 538 per 100,000, which is among the highest 10% death rates in the country. And shocking because New York State is not one of the highest death rate states. So what I'm saying here is that what we have is a a kind of um, purging of society that we have to bear witness to. We have to own this. We can't move on. We need to focus on it because... In the weaknesses, in the communities that were the weakest are the places where the next pandemic is going to take root. And if we are sincere in having all these people that died not die in vain, we owe it to these communities that are stressed to respond by universal health care as soon as possible. Bob Henley writes for Salon and other news organization. He is the author of a book uh, published by Democracy at Work called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? And he can be heard uh, on um, on WBAI. When is your show aired, Bob? 
It's uh, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. on Monday mornings. And the other thing I want to make a special offer to anybody that signs up to be BI buddy in name of Leonard Lopate, I will personally mail you. I have five copies of Stuck Nation. Oh, great. I, uh, I appreciate that because I was just about to ask people to support our station. <laughs> I feel you, Leonard. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. That, that brings care. us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archives of nearly 700 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. And right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give, the number 2, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique and depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and to keep Bob Henley on the air as well. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10 or more a month. And uh, Bob just offered the first five people who do that a copy of his book, we also be happy to send you a WBAI tote bag as a way of saying thank you. But uh, either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, give us that call, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, and don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you very much, and we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Sally Hayden will discuss her very shocking book, My Fourth Time, We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. I hope to see you then. <laughs>